So let us read responsively Lord's Day 4, questions and answers 9 to 11. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity, having declared, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. And now the scripture reading from Romans chapter 9, verse 14 to 24. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of one the same lump of clay, some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us? whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So for the reading of God's word, may the Holy Spirit add his blessing to it as we consider it together this evening. As I've titled this sermon, we're considering the origin and the end of sin tonight. And we have come to a difficult topic, the origin of of evil or the origin of sin and its end. These questions, how the question about how is it that evil and sin have entered into God's world according to his plan and purpose, this question has boggled the minds of Christians and philosophers for generations. And so I want to be upfront from the very beginning here that we are coming to the foothills of mystery. Great mysteries, too profound and too great for us to fully understand. But at the same time, I want, us, I want to do my best here to bring us sort of uh, as close as we can, can get to those foothills before we kind of cross over into vain speculations. So it's really hard for us to understand how is it 
that evil exists. Why does evil exist if God is good and powerful, etc.? Why would he allow evil to enter into this world? But first, I'll take a step back and answer or ask a different question and answer that. What is harder to believe and to accept? Evil is real, but we can't fully understand it, which is the Christian position. We can't fully understand its beginning, how it entered into God's world, or the alternative that evil is just an illusion, that there is neither good nor evil. These are just concepts in our mind that we've come up to. And I'm convinced that the second option is actually way harder to accept on both a rational and an emotional and psychological level. Well, how so? Well, some people claim that a good God would never allow evil to exist. But by saying that, they are assuming that good and evil exist actually. And this is ironic because those who do not believe in an all-powerful good God cannot prove that good and evil actually exist. They are claiming that God can't exist because evil can't because evil exists in this world, but if they became consistent in their thinking, well they they cannot believe that evil actually exists. You cannot say that X doesn't exist because Y exists when you don't even believe that Y exists, that Y is inconsistent with your framework, your understanding of the world. Uh, People of a naturalistic point of view do not believe that evil actually exists or good exists. You can't say that God exists because evil exists when you don't actually believe that evil exists. And people don't believe in a good creator God they cannot logically believe in that existence of good or evil. So where would, where would in that framework, in that understanding of the world, where would such metaphysical, you know, outside of this world, outside of the empirical realm of observation, where would these realities of good and evil come from if there is no God who has infused them into his created order? So if you believe that evil exists, but there is no God, will prove it. Where is your proof that true evil exists? You cannot prove it. In the naturalistic worldview, powerful predators, they are the prize winners. Uh, In that naturalistic understanding of the world, apart from God, for example, why is racism evil? Isn't it just the powerful securing for themselves a prize, their own prize? Why was the Holocaust of the Jews evil? Wasn't it just one powerful tribe removing a threat of another powerful tribe, the survival of the fittest? You see, apart from the foundation of God as a creator who is good himself, there is no ground to stand upon and claim that good and evil exist. And therefore, Thomas Aquinas, great Christian philosopher, theologian, said, if there is evil, there is a God. For there would be no evil if the order of good were removed, and there would be no such order if there were no God. So according to Aquinas there and the logic that is found in his argument, the existence of evil in this world that we all agree upon in a sense is actually an argument for the existence of God. But why then has God included sin and evil into his decree and its execution? His decree referring to his decision and plan for everything that has come to pass and will come to pass? That is is the tough question tonight. And Herman Bovink, a great reform theologian, has some 
good answers for us. He says this, precisely because God is the absolutely holy and almighty one, he can use sin as a means in his hand. Creatures cannot do that. With the least contact, they themselves become polluted and impure. But God is so infinitely far removed from wickedness that he can make sin as an unresisting instrument subservient to his glorification. And speaking in this way of God is mysterious for us. It's, it's a kind of enigma. Uh, and it reminds me of a story that's found in the Fellowship of the Rings from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It's found in the stories, the, the book itself, but not in the movie. It didn't, it didn't show up in the movies. They edited it out. And it's uh, about this uh, character called Tom Bombadil. If anyone knows of, of that story. Okay, it's fascinating. Tom Bombadil, he is an enigma in Middle Earth, in Tolkien's Middle Earth, in that story. We don't know where he came from. His origin is never revealed. He's kind of like the Melchizedek of the Old Testament um, you know, no beginning or end of his days. Who is this guy? and Where did he come from? You, when you read the story of Tom Bombadil. And in this story, what happens is the hobbits, as they're starting their journey, they get lost in the woods. They get trapped by this great willow tree that's kind of consuming them and about to destroy them. And then Tom Bombadil comes and he shows up and he sings a song and liberates the hobbits from the grips of the tree. And then he invites Frodo, the hobbit with the ring, and his companions to his home, where he kind of, they enter into a dream-like stay with them. They're feasting, and it's all joyous and pleasant and merriment with Tom Bombadil. And there, Frodo happens to tell Tom Bombadil about the great ring in his quest to destroy the ring, which is kind of this symbol. The ring is a symbol of evil or the potential of evil. And when Tom asks Frodo to inspect the ring, Frodo, in all other instances, is very reluctant to give the ring away to others, but he, without questioning, just hands the ring over to Tom Bombadil, and Tom Bombadil puts on the ring, and not only does Tom not disappear, which, is, which happens with everyone else who puts on the ring, but also the ring appears to have no effect on him at all. And then after a kind of sleight of hands, he returns the ring back to Frodo. And one insightful blogger online, <laughs> as I was looking into this, says this, the ring could not affect Tom Bombadil because he is mysteriously outside the whole issue of power and domination. Tolkien is using Tom as an allegory that even this intense struggle between good and evil is, in a sense, beyond Tom Bombadil. And so we can see in this, uh, similar to what Bavink was saying, that God is mysteriously far removed from all evil and wickedness, so far that he can decree it and its execution. He can use it and let it be subservient to his will and his glorification and yet not be affected by it, not be tainted by it, not be polluted by it. It has no power over him. He cannot be corrupted by it. So he uses it, but unlike us, he is not corrupted by it in any way. And so God willfully chose to allow sin in that sense to enter into the theater of his creation, using it to be subservient to his glorification, even though he hates it. Why? Well, we don't know in full. 
We do know in part that he permitted sin's presence in order to do something, in order to showcase his splendid attributes, namely his justice to punish all sin, his mercy to forgive sin, and his power to remove all sin in the end. And that's what Paul is claiming in Romans 9, the passage we looked at. He calls us to remember how God dealt with Pharaoh, who before Hitler was kind of the go-to villain that you would refer to, you know, in people's minds. Uh, He's like Pharaoh, right? This is an evil, corrupt man. And God allowed Pharaoh to harden his own heart. He permitted it. God allowed him to kill infants, the infants of his own people. God allowed Pharaoh to enslave and oppress his people. These are great evil acts. God could have easily stopped Pharaoh. God could have easily stopped him in, that, in his ways. And he could easily stop all of sin and evil now. So why, then, would God allow evil to go on in this way? Why did he allow Pharaoh? Well, again, we look at what Paul says. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So what we're seeing there, what Paul is saying, is that against the contrast of great evil that God has permitted into this world, The goodness of God shines all the more brightly, and we can see it more clearly. Uh, St. Augustine uses some really fascinating illustrations to show how this works. He says that evil functions like shadows in a painting that that help us better display the subject. So shadows are there to help kind of the subject pop out and so we can see it more clearly. Or evil is like barbarisms that exist in language or colloquial language that help us appreciate the beauty of refined speech. So the contrast helps us see with greater clarity what is beautiful, what is good. And in that sense, it helps us see evil in its existence, helps us see with greater clarity the splendid attributes of God. He, uh, he referring to Augustine, says this, God composed the order of history like a beautiful poem of antithetical elements to heighten the beauty and harmony of the whole. That's just so beautifully put. Now, Bob Inc., again, going back to Bob Inc., he concludes this saying, in God's government over sin, his attributes are splendidly displayed. The riches of God's grace, the depth of his compassion, the unchanging nature of his faithfulness, the inviolable character of his justice, the glory of his wisdom, and power have shown out all the more brilliantly as a result of sin. And so by allowing and permitting, according to his decree, allowing sin and evil to enter the world, we can see more clearly, more splendidly, his marvelous attributes of power, justice, mercy, and grace. Now, that does not fully solve the mystery at all for us, but God does want us to know at least one good reason here for why he willfully permitted sin. Knowing what evil is and does helps us clearly see who God is in total contrast to evil. And it helps us stand more in awe of what God has done also to get rid of evil, to get rid of sin 
by coming to willfully suffer in our place on the cross. And we'll come to that in a bit. So we see and we admit that God has willfully permitted evil into his story. And that is still a great mystery that we cannot fully ascend to the mountaintops of that mystery to understand it. But notice, notice as the Heidelberg Catechism explains here that God will not permit evil to go unpunished. And there is no mystery in that, according to the scriptures. God will most surely punish all sin, all evil, with perfect, exacting justice. But if that is so, and we believe it is, then how can God be merciful to us, to we who are sinners? For he will surely, most certainly punish our sins in full. So how do we then reconcile the justice and mercy of God? And to answer that, I want us to read Psalm 85. You can turn there in your Bibles. Look at this. Psalm 85. This is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And I'll read again Psalm 85. You, Lord showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? showing us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation, or show us. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Okay, what we see in here, loved ones, is that the sons of Korah who wrote this psalm, they knew a series of truths about God that they're kind of meditating on here in this psalm. They knew, one, that the Lord our God is righteous. In other words, he is just. And they knew that because of their sins that they had provoked the righteous anger of God, his wrath. And so his pure justice demands punishment for evil. But they also knew, secondly, that the Lord our God is merciful. In other words, he is love. They knew that God had promised peace and salvation to his people. And thirdly, They knew that in some mysterious way, these apparently conflicting truths, that God is just, but he is also merciful, that they meet together in loving embrace in the very heart of God. So much so that these attributes are said to poetically kiss each other. There's no conflict between them. God is not divided. He is both just and merciful, both righteous and loving. They didn't know the sons of Korah, they didn't know how this apparent paradox within God would work out, how it would be logically. How could God be both just and the justifier of the wicked? How can God be just in declaring dirty criminals 
who have sinned against his high majesty, how can he declare them to be righteous and upstanding citizens in his kingdom? How can he be both merciful and just? We know the answer now, right? In his body on the cross, the Son of God took upon himself all of our sin and in righteousness, the Father exacted from Jesus Christ the fullness of his justice. There on the cross was justice. He suffered unimaginable pain, physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual pain for us exacting justice of God. And in those few hours, God's supreme penalty was compressed into the body and soul of Jesus in order to pay in full the price for us sinning against his supreme majesty. So God on the cross was just. But that's not all, right? God in human flesh willingly came to suffer in that way in order to be merciful to his people as well to fulfill not only the demands of his righteousness and his justice, but also to fulfill his loving commitment to his chosen people, to his promises of old. Jesus suffered according to his unfailing love. And so there on the cross was mercy and justice together, meeting. There on the cross in the dying body and soul of Jesus, we see what the sons of Korah could not foresee There, God's love and faithfulness met together. There, God's holy righteousness and peace kissed each other. And it was all out of love for us. And so at the end of the day, we can't rightly be upset at God for allowing and permitting the evil of suffering into this world when he himself was willing to suffer and has suffered more than any other human in all of human history. And he suffered in order to put an end to evil, in order to put an end to suffering. In in fact, that the death of Jesus, he put a definitive end to all of our evil. He has removed the penalty and the power of our sin. And in the end, when Christ returns and calls us home into glory, that residual sin that we still have that clings to us, that too will be brought to a full and final end. And that is how our own evil will be ended. Now, regarding the rest of the evil deeds that exist in this world, the deeds that were not, in a sense, paid for by Christ on the cross, well, how will that justice of God be exacted? Well, the final judgment will bring a swift and final end to all of evil. And we consider in the Heidelberg Catechism that he will forever banish evil and all those who refuse to repent and believe in the gospel, he will send them in his judgment to the place, as Jesus referred to it, of darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we learn that God, he will exact his full and final justice, but we also learn that he is merciful. God's justice will reign and in the new creation. We learn that there will be no curse. No curse will be found. No more evil, no more sin, no more disasters, no more suffering. And Christ has brought this about through his suffering on the cross for us. And so for us, we have this great hope of that lasting peace. And now, after all of redemptive history and because of the evil that has entered in the world, we have a greater vision of his splendid attributes, his justice, his power, his mercy, and his grace. We'll end there. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father God, for this time, this brief time to consider these profound mysteries that are indeed beyond our comprehension. Uh, we are seeking to understand your ways, and we recognize that we come up to a point, a line where we cannot cross because we are not the creator. We are not God. You are. You have created us. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for what you have revealed in your word that gives us great confidence in who you are and astonishes us with your grace and your mercy, especially as we consider what you did for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, your son, O Father, where he died on the cross, where your justice and peace kissed each other, where your faithfulness and your love met together. Lord, we praise you and your holy name and your righteousness, and we look forward to the day with great longing in our hearts when Christ returns and brings that full and final end to all of evil. We look forward to the peace that is to come. Prepare us for it and help us walk in your ways. We ask in Jesus' name.